Welcome to the Building Confidence podcast brought to you by KPMG, where we explore a range of issues which impacts on stakeholder confidence in governance, corporate reporting and audit. I'm Phil Smart. I'm an audit partner here at KPMG and I'm your host for today. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Sir John Thompson, Chief Executive of the FRC. We had the pleasure of speaking with, uh, with you, John, almost a year ago for our very first episode. So thanks for joining us again today. I'm sure most of our listeners will know who you are, but Maybe you could say a few words uh, around your role at the FRC. Uh, certainly, and good to see you again, Phil. So the Financial Reporting Council is the UK regulator for companies, uh, notably mostly those listed companies. And we set the standards for accounting, for um, corporate reporting and for corporate governance. And then we regulate a series of professions which are associated with that. So accountants, auditors, uh, the audit firms and actuaries. So that's broadly the remit of the FRC. It's a, it's a very wide remit in global terms against other regulators. But that's broadly what we do. Thanks, John. So today we'll be talking about the government's long-awaited response to the March 2021-based consultation on, on restoring trust in audit and corporate governance. And as many of you will know, uh, this consultation was launched in March last year and received well over 600 responses. So we'll touch on where we go, we go from here, how the FRC is going to respond to that, market competition, and also the attractiveness of the UK as, as a place to do business. So without further ado, let's let's dive right in and in the, the area of regulatory reform. It's now been over four years since John, uh, Sir John Kingman uh, undertook his, his review of the FRC. What's your assessment of how things are going? Have you achieved what you wanted to do in terms of repositioning the regulator? Well, I think the the FRC has made some really significant strides over the the last three years, really, because there was a sort of year hiatus after uh, Sir John produced his report. So there are probably four things that we can point to. One is the capacity and capability of the organisations definitely increased. And John was keen that we did have a look at resources devoted to the areas that we uh, are responsible for. And we roughly doubled the size of the organisation. So we've definitely got lots of new people, lots of new skills uh, and so on. I think secondly, we were we are a more confident organisation. We're happy to say where we uh, see great practice, but we're equally happy to say where we think further development uh, needs to take place. Just a more sense of a more confident regulator because of the uh, developments. Thirdly, I think we've, we've developed a whole series of things which just didn't exist before or where we were extremely weak, some of which were pointed out by Sir John, but some of them weren't. So audit firm supervision, and the development of, uh, of the related operational separation principles uh, on the back of the Competition and Marks Authority report. I think that's been a big step forward and the big four have all responded uh, really well to the idea of operational separation. We've developed an audit market supervision methodology and injected people into that team. So we are understanding the whole of the audit market, not just focusing at the sort of top end. And we've built an actuarial function completely from scratch really in a wonderful new uh, actuary as the leader of that. So those are kinds of examples of where we've taken some specific and bold steps. Uh, lastly on my list would be we've definitely tried to, to issue more in terms of best practice. So we issued five reports of best practice in 2020, but 13 last year. So we're trying to highlight what's working, what do we think is good, what does good look like and so on. And people can then look at the various examples which exist in the market, either in corporates or or in audit or in stewardship or whatever. And I suppose the the totemic, but slightly controversial document was 
what makes a good audit, um, which, you know, some people went, well, it's kind of obvious, but we thought actually it was worth us as a regulator saying this is what we think good actually looks like, so you know what you're aiming for, and that's definitely moved us much more into the sort of improvement uh, uh, regulator. So I think, you know, good progress. We've done everything you could possibly probably have done without legislative change, um, and we've got probably gone a bit further than that if we're being completely frank about it. And now what we need is to move forward with uh, primary legislation. So lots of proactive actions on, on, on the part of the regulator, but but as you mentioned, legislation is the next step. And and with Argon now expected to be in place in, in 2024, that's that's six years since Sir John started started his work. Do you think there are lessons that we can all learn uh, around ensuring the UK's governance, reporting and regulatory models can be adopted more swiftly and, and nimbly? Yeah, there are def there's definitely a key lesson to be learned from this uh, process, uh, which is that if you, what you want to do is to hardwire all the rules into primary legislation, then it takes an awfully long time to change that primary legislation. So there's an interesting balance for Parliament to strike between what do you actually want to write into acts, notably the Companies Act, and to what extent are you prepared to give powers to the Secretary of State or indeed regulators to be much more nimble in terms of changing uh, the regulatory framework because of whatever it is that we're finding. And that could both be a kind of putting more rules in because we think it's needed, but also wanting to deregulate and relying on primary legislation is not not usually a good a good way of doing that because it just, as you rightly say, take a really long time to do it. And that will be a key uh, question for Parliament when the department tables some draft primary legislation. Uh, the proposals as they stand uh, uh, will be giving uh, Argus some, some pretty wide and broad ranging uh, powers. And when I speak to regulators about those powers, uh, there is a theme ar around, um, is there a risk here that the regulator becomes judge, jury and, and executioner? Do, do you think those those concerns are, are well founded or, or, or are the checks and balances going to be in place? Well, I think those comments, uh, uh, and this isn't about what you just said, are garbage. I mean, the, the, there's plenty of checks and balances in the system at the minute. If people don't like what we're doing, particularly in relation to enforcement cases, then they have the absolute right to go to an independent tribunal, and they can do that. And I'm afraid nobody is going to convince me that Lord Judge, who chaired the last tribunal, is not an independent person. I mean, he's the former Lord Chief Justice of the United Kingdom, right? I mean, it's a pretty high-level post. They judge the evidence they hand down a judgment in that tribunal. So we are not the judge, jury and executioner. Tribunals also decide on penalties where appropriate in, in within a framework of guidance. So this idea that we sort of can do all of these things without any kind of level of accountability or independence, I think is is, is absolutely garbage. Thank you, John. I think it's pretty clear on that one. Um, when we when we spoke last year, uh, you mentioned that greater investor engagement would, would be one of the, the the most important drivers for change. What trends have you seen in this area over the last twelve months? Do you think there's more that investors should be doing? Well, the answer to that question is, is definitely. So we have seen some investors move, and some of them have moved really rather a long way, and that's to be welcomed. But I still think that the centre ground of the investors market is relatively passive. So for those who are doing uh, what we think they should be doing, we're very impressed with the engagement on ESG matters. I mean, you can see that across the market. People are very interested in the impact of companies on the environment, for example, 
we're seeing the emergence of global standards and then the UK needs to make a decision about how they apply uh, in the UK and so on. But there's significant investor pressure there, significant investor interest in that. And, you know, that I think is a good thing. I think we're also seeing um, more interest in risk and resilience and the future of organisations. That's definitely also an area where investors often talk to us about can we get more information about risk, about the inherent risk and the resilience statement, which is the government's uh, legislative proposal, I think has been very warmly welcomed by investors. Now, but that isn't a very long list, is it? And I mean, if we're being frank about it, there's still plenty more that investors could do across the whole market. It's great having some of them right at the forefront of this and who are signatories to the stewardship code, but that is not the market centre ground at the minute. It's still too passive for us and we need more investors to get involved. And generally speaking, companies I talk to say they want uh, more engagement from investors. Thanks, John. Um, another thing that I often hear, and actually one as an audit partner that I experienced firsthand, is, is, is that the length of corporate reporting is ever increasing and, and, and so is the volume of guidance being published. What, what are your thoughts on this and, and what do you think is the most effective way to, to drive change in this area? Well, we agree with that. I mean, the, the annual report and accounts has got longer and longer and longer over the years. It's been a kind of vehicle of convenience for uh, government ministers to say, well, companies should report on this in the annual report, whatever that happens to be, the continual policy evolution, they must report in the annual report. Our view is that uh, it's gone too far. The annual report needs to be shorter and it needs to be mu much more focused on uh, what people want. Now, we think you can strip out of the annual report various different elements which stakeholders have an interest in, but they don't need to form part of the annual report. In fact, we did a review of this called the Future of Corporate Reporting, which made some suggestions about removals, but it also suggested a more modular and proportionate approach, because if you are a retailer, then it's very different than if you're, say, a mineral extractor. And there are various different aspects of corporate reporting that need to be more tailored to the relevant uh, industry. Uh, now, the upshot of where we are now is that uh, on the back of the publication of the government's proposals, we have been asked to conduct a non-financial reporting review. That's what it's been called, uh, which is everything that's in the annual report. Could it make some recommendations to ministers about what could be dropped or significantly streamlined? Because obviously that would remove the, the, the burden, which is currently on companies and the cost on companies, which is exactly the point that's made to you and me all the time. So we're completely aligned about this. We think we've got a good base to start from in that work on the future of corporate reporting. And now we will take that further and make formal recommendations to ministers. So, so now that the government's published uh, their the response, I'd be really interested to hear your views on it. Do, do you think we've now got the right package of recommendations to drive change across across the corporate reporting ecosystem? Well, overall, I think there's lots of positives in the government's response, and you can trace it back through to the consultation and you can trace it back uh, to one of the three original reports. And, you know, your listeners will be familiar with those original reports, too. So there's lots of positive things in that. All the things which are in the publication we agree with, we're supportive of, and we want to take forward with the department and then subsequently implement. Uh, we would have gone further. Uh, in two areas, uh, notably in relation to Sarbanes-Oxley or the question about internal controls over financial reporting, which was 
in the uh, government's consultation paper, and you, you may, I guess, want to come back on that. And then we we think that the current proposals on the extension of the definition of a public interest entity don't really uh, deal with the presenting problem. And in fact, if anything, the introduction of thresholds which aren't to do with sources of capital, but are to do with other factors like turnover or number of employees and so on, have actually made that landscape more complex than it was before these proposals. And uh, what we were trying to aim for in the consultation was if you became a public interest entity, there would be two sorts, a sort of large and a small, and there would be a proportionate regulatory system that applied. And we were debating about what was large and what was small. But you know, if you broadly assume that that was what we were trying to do, two broadly different sorts of pies. Um, what actually we're going to end up with is a really quite a complex series of thresholds. So once you work out that you qualify as a public interest entity, then you're going to have to go through a series of different criteria to work out what kind. And there are definitely going to be significantly more than two different sorts. Uh, and so I think the FRC is going to have to take on board issuing some sort of further guidance or a sort of route, route map from, OK, I'm on the mark, I'm on AIM, I've got a turnover of X, I employ this number of people, what therefore is the regulatory regime, what are your reporting requirements, your audit requirements and so on and so forth. And I think what we're going to discover is that there are between 20 and 35 different sorts of public interest entities, which we think is confusing um, and, and will undoubtedly be confusing for those who have to implement it. So those are the two areas where we still would have liked the, the government to have gone further on the first and have simplified on the second. Well, I certainly echo your views around the, uh, the the need for simplification on the second. I think there's there's a real capacity challenge for for all parties involved actually in in, in meeting the uh, the increased demands for that for that wider group of pies. Let, let's jump to the uh, the area of UK socks which which you mentioned there, and and, and this area has attracted much debate over the last year uh, 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 in terms of proposals for for a strengthened UK controls frame, framework. What what are your views on on what? What the government's recommend re recommending, and I'm particularly interested in the pros and cons of adopting a code solution rather than a, a, a legislative one. Well, <laughs> the difference between a, a legislative solution like in the US and a code solution, which is in the document, is of course it's, ma it's not mandatory. If you go down the code route, it's a uh, comply or explain, and that the essential problem is this: if you read our annual review of a corporate reporting or of corporate governance. What they, they say is standards of corporate governance and standards of corporate reporting are really rather high and we can see how they've improved, but we've got some ideas how they were further improved. And if you broadly split all the number of companies that, that applies to, you would you would get to something like 97% actually really are rather well run, good high standards of corporate governance. But there's a small minority that don't really comply, are lazy, don't want to do it or whatever, right? And the thing about a, a sort of legislative solution is they'd have to do it, whereas the code solution means they can still continue to opt out. And we've got examples of companies who've actually taken themselves out of the regulatory framework altogether because they don't they don't want to do it. So that's essentially the difference between legislation and, and, and a code approach. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think one of the biggest surprises and maybe one that people aren't really talking about that much is the the proposal to, to actually broaden uh, uh, the board's report around effectiveness and internal controls 
beyond uh, those over financial reporting, but 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 to cover operational compliance and wider financial financial risks. And and, and arguably, they, those are the risks which do do pose a greater threat to stakeholders. Uh, but but it is quite a significant broadening of 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 the regime. Yeah, it is. Let me look. Let's be transparent about it. The, the legislative proposal was for internal controls over financial reporting, a much tighter drawn regime than the US regime, there's some uh, in other in, in other uh, in other countries too. What we've gone for in the end is a code approach, which is a much wider application, but you can then link that to two other things. One is the resilience statement, and the resilience statement in the short, medium and long term is much more likely to be about business risk than it is about internal about risk in relation to financial reporting. So you can see some logic about uh, the two being connected together. And then thirdly, the audit and insurance statement proposals give the audit committee the power to seek further assurance on any aspect of that in the broadest sense. So if you like the three propositions, internal control, resilience statement and audit and insurance statement align, and that's good. And then we need to look at the, the fourth element of this, which is what is the role of the external auditor in reporting clearly their view about internal controls. So yes, it's moved from where it was to a different place, but actually it makes more strategic sense to align all of those elements of the reform into the same place. Let, let's move on to competition in the audit market. Uh, I know this is something that's generated uh, huge amounts of, of, of interest uh, from, from both companies, investors and, and auditors, in fact. What do you think is needed to achieve greater competition in the audit market? Well, what we want is a more resilient market. I mean, we don't quite use the same language that you do, but we want a more resilient market. And there are, we think there are probably three ways forward on this. I, ignoring the propositions that are in the paper, there are three ways forward. One is we need an increase in the number of firms who can deliver consistently high audit quality. And, you know, we've been pushing away at that for a number of years, but I think if people can hold their breath, the, this year's annual review of audit quality will have some really interesting positive developments in relation to audit quality uh, by the market. So that's a good thing. And we need that, that curve to now continue. We know all the firms have got improvement programmes and massively investing in, in that. So, so we need more more choices facilitated by more firms delivering higher levels of audit quality. Secondly, there's a rather interesting issue about conflicts. We think conflicts are restricting people's ability to uh, bid for audits that they otherwise would do. And, you know, in a multidisciplinary firm, that is clearly a, a significant issue. We've seen EY, rumours about EY maybe splitting the firm into two parts so that that conflicts issue is removed and you know they would be able, they would be able to bid for more audits. That's a rather interesting market development, um, we think. And thirdly, there's definitely a question about the risk processes of firms because, quite rightly, you know if you're in an audit firm, you're going to run a risk process on potential uh, companies who want to be audited. We think that we've seen some moves in that space in the last two or three years that have meant more companies kind of being filtered out. And what's actually happening with those companies is that they're now being audited by smaller audit firms who, if anything, are less capable of doing it. And we've got this, there's a really interesting and quite complex set of dynamics uh, in that question. But one of the solutions would be, well, maybe limit liability, which allows people to take on riskier audits, but with you know less consequence if it goes 
wrong. So those are some of the other factors as well as the government's uh, propositions on managed shared audit or, and and or potentially audit capping, which I guess you probably want to ask me a bit more about. Yeah, and, and maybe on the, on the managed shared audits, I mean, that's clearly going to need the buy-in from, from challenger uh, audit firms. Um, how do you think this is being perceived by them and, and do you think they're ready to step up? Well, it depends who they are. It depends who they are, right? And it's kind of a slightly casual conversation, sorry, comment on my part, but the, it, the challenger firms have a huge range of business moving their way. So they, they're overwhelmed with people asking them to do work, whether that's audit or it's related assurance, so on and so forth. So there's plenty of market opportunity if you were running a challenger firm. And we've seen some fairly spectacular growth in that in that element of the market in the last couple of years, um, which we set out in our annual review. So will they all uh, play in this space if there's opportunities? Uh, Fred, the, 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 answer, the short answer to that is to wait and see. They're, they're all taking slightly different strategic positions. I think we will definitely see one want to do it. Um, for the other two significant challenges, um, I'm less convinced that they do. So is, is managed shared order actually going to deliver us the capacity and capability in the market that, that ministers were seeking? Not sure at the minute. I think it's early days. And we need to understand that market measures generally take a long time to make any significant difference to your market. Uh, so um, at this point, I'm sort of like, I'm hopeful, but I mean, there's a lot of ground to cover here, particularly in relation to how do you implement MSA? which is yeah. a constant conversation. Yes, that's certainly going to be the challenge. Um, the, the next topic I'd like to explore is, is, is what, what does all this mean for, for the attractiveness of the UK market? I, I, I think arguably the recent proposals and, and, and the various reviews which have led to them were a once in a generation opportunity to reform the whole corporate regulatory landscape. Do you, th do you think that these, these reforms will do so in, in a way which will, which will enhance the attractiveness of the UK market? I think the thing about the UK market, which is attractive, is that it's a high standards, uh, a high standards market. I mean, people come to the UK because they can rely upon, you know, the rule of law about the quality of uh, the market, about uh, the transparency of the market, and so on and so forth. And what this what this package does is to raise standards in some particular areas where we think we've got uh, weaknesses, if you like, as pointed out by the three independent reviews. If anything, the general view is that that increases the attractiveness of the UK for inward investment. Um, particularly, we feel the new obligations on directors so that people who want to invest can uh, place more reliance that the directors are doing what they're supposed to be doing and that they're transparently reporting for all of that. So of the general view is that it adds to attractiveness. Um, but I know there are some other views out there, but the general view seems to be that. Yeah. And in terms of attracting talent to both, both the audit profession, but also the the, the, the uh, finance within 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 companies, uh, do you th do you think this is potentially going to scare some some potentially good candidates away, or 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 can that be turned around? In relation to non-executive directors, you mean? Well, it could be Neds, it, it could be the, the audit profession, or or, or the wider the wider community. Well, in relation to the audit profession. Uh... There's clearly significant opportunity, and um, particularly because 
these proposals increase the amount of assurance that some companies are going to want to give to the market. So, for example, assurance over ESG reporting. Um, and we've seen some announcements, including your own, about expansion of the number of people who will do assurance work. So there'll be plenty of work out there to go around. Uh, whether it's attractive or not, um, well, it seems to generally be very attractive to work for com you know firms like your, your good self because you have fantastic graduate schemes. Um, and they're very attractive to people who get tremendous professional training. I can't predict what you know about what you think happened to your firm. I think in relation to non-executive directors, which is the obvious other uh, uh, area or group that's impacted, there was quite a bit of chatter in the consultation phase about, oh, this will turn off people from being non-executive directors. I, I, I don't believe that's true, right? I mean, we need to be clear that what these proposals do is hammer home existing, existing responsibilities of non-executive directors. Now, it hammers them home by saying, we're going to be a bit more transparent about it. Um, and we're really making sure that you understand what it's like to be a non-executive director of a public interest entity. And they, these are serious roles, but there's plenty of super talented people in the UK who want to be non-executive directors. Um, and we have every confidence that that will happen. We do understand, though, that, that what these proposals do is probably increase risk for non-executive directors. They almost certainly mean that a bit more time is going to be required, particularly if you're on the audit committee. And we've been up front from the start that all of that translates into probably higher reward for the non-execs but uh we we don't we don't believe that this will be a uh, a detrimental thing no strong um before we wrap up i'd, I'd like to take a few minutes uh, just to get your thoughts uh, in terms of what our listeners should be focusing on uh, in this reporting season and maybe if we if we could start with corporates so uh, with all the change coming down the line sh should they start making changes now or, or, or wait for further guidance well, there's two things that they could do now. One is to have a look at what is, what is your assurance framework? Where do you get assurance from? And you can put that responsibility on the audit committee um, to do assurance mapping and so on. And the other is to have a look at internal internal controls. And we work very, very closely with the audit committee's chairs as a group. We know that some of them have piloted that. Um, and indeed, some of the requirements which come down the, come down the pipe later to just we'll see where they are now and uh, actually they're beginning to share those stories between them and I, we think that's a, a very positive uh, market development those are the two areas that corporates could have a look at now yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and in terms of boarding committees what, what what are the one or two questions that board me, uh, members should be asking management uh what are the key accounting judgments um because you know as well as i do that you know you, the, the the accounting standards allow for a judgmental overlay and it's for the board to decide on that how aggressive are those judgments which flow through into the financial results and then how transparent is it about where we are and investors really really would like that information about how transparent are you about your level of aggressiveness or prudence in relation to some of those accounting judgments. Those are all areas where if I was a general non-executive director or a member of a board, uh, I'd be asking for. You, you've maybe answered my next question, but but what should investors be looking out for and what questions should they, they be asking of, of companies? Well, the first step that they ought to probably take is to get involved and seek a meeting with the audit committee chair and talk about the financial results and what underpins them and what risks being taken and forward business plan and so on. That's the first thing you've got to do. You can't passively sit back and go, well, I can't, I've got this investment, but you know, I'm not really that bothered because it's my pension that they're investing or yours or indeed the listeners on this call right, or their savings or whatever. So, you know, get involved, 
start by meeting the audit committee chair and go from there. And, and finally, the audit industry, what, what would be your advice to a, to a big four firm like ours? What do you think we should be focusing on and, and changing now ahead of any new legislation? I would keep going with the impressive programmes of improvement with audit quality. I mean, uh, as I said, I mean, I think our annual review will give a positive endorsement to those programmes, but there's, there's still more that we need to do. Um, but driving high levels of audit quality consistently is, is the primary thing that we need audit firms to focus on. And you've got an impressive improvement plan to do that. Well, you know, let's continue to implement it. Thanks. Well, I think that's just about uh, all the time we have uh, for today's podcast. And, and we've certainly covered a lot of ground there, John. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and insights. It's, it's been really great to hear your, your take on, on what is clearly a, a, an absolutely vital topic for the uh, uh, for, for the industry. Um, my key takeaways from today, I mean, it's been a long time coming, but 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 actually, I think we we can take some positives from from the government review. Yes, that there are there are a couple of areas which, which I think we probably all agree uh, could could have been handled a little differently and may need some some further refinement. And uh, not not least the uh, the internal controls piece and and the pie definition. And, and finally, some good pointers from you there, John, around what the various stakeholder groups should be should be thinking about as as, as we move through the, uh, the the coming reporting seasons. We have many more uh, great guests in future episodes, so please do subscribe to our podcast to get alerted when new episodes are being published. Thank you and goodbye for now. 